Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope. Good to see you. That was a healthy good morning. That's good. It's good to hear. Good to hear you're awake, alive. Alive at least. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, Nat's not here this morning. You can pray for us. We're on the first leg of a marathon. Uh, we're taking our three-year-old and our one-year-old grandson and granddaughter for nine days. And so, you know what I figured out in this church? You know, you get those little beepers. They're redeemable for one kid. Did you know that? Just take them in, hand them, they give you a kid. So we have one, and that's going to be coming at the uh, end of this service, the beginning of the next with both the kids. But I found out some things. There are things that happen when you have grandkids stay in your house. Uh, maybe you know some of these things. I, I found out that the signal on my TV mysteriously disappeared. It just went away. Uh, it's gone. I don't know where, where it went. I can't get it back. Uh, my granddaughter said, oh, sorry, I just pressed this button, and I, I, can't, I can't reverse it. I don't know what went wrong. So I, I've been working on that one. And the other one is this. Uh, the voicemail on your telephone gets altered. And uh, so sorry, uh, because I know some of you have been calling and you've been getting jibber-jabber. Those are my grandkids talking to each other about pressing the button on the, the voicemail. So it's gone. We tried to, it took us three hours to unravel the mystery there. Why were we not getting calls? And then we called ourselves and we went, oh, that's why we're not getting calls. It's all been changed. Annette's figurines are rearranged. They're all rearranged. got rearranged. We don't know how they did it, when they did it, but they were rearranged. The remote control to another TV vanished. Can't find it. Don't know where it went. Uh, cell phone does things, not good things. It never did before. Uh, just, uh, it just happens. Computer refuses to obey after one of the grandkids was in the proximity of that computer. How those work, I don't know. What, what happened there? The plumbing in our house isn't the same. It's just changed. And, and then there's this. Things that were never sticky are really sticky now. And I, how in the world they got sticky stuff where you don't, um, you can't imagine that. And so that's, that's what's going on at our house. And that's what's going to be going on for the next six or seven days. So you can, uh, you can be praying. Pray for prayer. <laughs> Pray. Pray for me, but really pray for Annette. I'm doing the best, but uh, she 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 carries the brunt of that. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I have other things I could have put on the list. You know, they're all coming to me right here. So, uh, hey, I want to give a good report. You know, we talk about this every now and again. We don't talk about it a lot, but every now and again, we we bring to your attention the finances and things that are going because it's part of a real world. It's part of what we deal with. A year ago, uh, at, at this time, we were behind a cumulative of about three years. We were behind close to $100,000 living off our savings. We brought it to your attention. You got busy with taking care of this. We are now currently today living well in the black. And so you just need to know that. Okay? So you've done a, done a great, 
should have been a good, it's, it's a good testimony and we talk about other things and sometimes the, the things we talk about aren't always good news, but today I wanted to bring you a good report. And so, uh, thank you. Uh, it's been a blessing. Well, I think you know that the ways God chooses to form and shape our lives are varied as the stars in the sky. But there seems to be some consistent principles that precede a life-changing encounter with Jesus. There are things that happen in your life and my life that seem to be principles found foundational to a miracle taking place. And you can see that through the Gospels. You can see that through the New Testament. And to me, this really is a testimony of how God values each of us as his unique and wonderful creation. Now, here are a few things and a few principles that I think about that when we're talking about the miracles in the Bible, when we talk about miracles in our own lives, I think there are a few things we need to note. What is happening? What is creating the environment for those miracles to take place? Number one is this. Number one, and it's always there, it's consistent, the Word of God being taught and preached. Whenever you know or hear or see the Word of God being taught and preached, you can, you can anticipate that, that a miracle will follow. It can happen. And that's just the, the nature of the Lord and His Word. Secondly, the faith that rises in the individual or individuals involved in the encounter with Jesus. So whenever someone was stirred up by the presence of the Lord, there was this uh, amazing faith that rose up in those people and they believed things that they never believed before. They believed things about God and that God could touch them and heal them. And then thirdly is repentance and forgiveness, that you see that to be consistent in miracles that take place, especially in the New Testament, where there is a, a repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, all of these elements that I'm talking about, I've just given you, come together in our gospel story today. And I want to share with you this story. I told you a few weeks ago that I was going to come back to this story, and, and I am right now, this moment. And that's why I want you to open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at Mark chapter 2 together, and I want, I want to read this with you in just a moment. But Mark chapter 2 is a great story in the Bible because Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it's here we discover how Jesus changed a life. A life headed for, if not already, in poverty. And the reason this life could have been in poverty is because this life was was physically filled with palsy. Uh, there was paralysis. And in those days, you need to know that if that was your fate, if that's what happened to you, you were probably going to be a pauper. You were probably going to live your life on the streets begging for alms. And, and, and here what we see is there's no health insurance back then. There's no Social Security. There's no life insurance. But this man that we're going to talk about today, we're going to read about today, had two things going for him. Uh, the two things that he had going for him was this. Number one, he had access to a touchable Jesus. And number two, he had four determined friends. Can I say this? I'm going to be very bold about this. The formula still works today. That, that we have a touchable Jesus and that we need friends in our life that will bring us to the throne of grace and say, here's my friend. Would you touch them, Jesus? Would you touch them? Would you heal them? And, and I see that happening and I'm excited about this because this really, again, is the formula for the miraculous. And I'm going to read to you Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And you can follow with me. It says this. Beginning of verse 1, and again he entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there were no room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. And then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. 
And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? You who can forgive sins, but God alone. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus with themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say to him, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, he took up his bed, he went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. It's an amazing story, and in fact, this story has a multitude of approaches that you can look at this story, you can isolate one facet of the story and talk about it for days. What I want to do is I want to take you through just verse by verse through the story and analyze some things that I think are pertinent to us, some things that we can apply to our own lives that are found in this passage of Scripture because I think it is one of those Scriptures that we really need to pay attention to. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago and I've already said it, and that's that Jesus did something in this story that altered His ministry. I, I, I really believe this. I believe that He said something here. When you look at the life of Christ, when you look at His progression toward the cross, there are things that happened that were turning points. He was stepping over thresholds. And this certainly to me was one of those thresholds. And that's when he said to the man who was a paralytic, he said to him, your sins are forgiven you. Now, up until this point, Jesus showed his authority over the law, his authority over diseases and demons, his authority over men, and even his authority over creation. And here in Mark chapter 2, he shows his authority over sin. Now, if he didn't have a target on his back before, he does now. Because this is a big thing to the scribes. This is a big thing to the Pharisees. And some people ask, well, why? Why is this so important to them? And I want to tell you why it wasn't and what they made you believe it was and really what the bottom line was. You know, they, they believed that they were the guardians of sin. They were in the sin business. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. What they did is they didn't have God's sovereignty in mind. They didn't have his character in mind. They had the sin business in mind. You, you need to know, the sacrificial system back then would have been a multi-million dollar business today. Jesus is cutting in on their action. This is going to get their dander up. This is going to make them upset. You mean you forgave sins and there was no money exchanged? You forgave sins and, and, and there was no sacrifice exchanged? You mean you just said it and it happened? How dare you? And Can you see what's happening here? The scribes are, are tremendously worried here. Now, it's not the only time this has taken place. You go back to the Reformation. They sold what they call indulgences. It was a, a amount of money, depending on your kind of sin or your sin, they would, they would pay. They would, they would judge. The church would say, well, this sin deserves this much money. You pay it and you're absolved. Now, I'm given the bottom line, but that's what happened. And, and I say all this to say this. Relieving people of the weight of sin is a huge industry. It was a huge industry then. It's a huge industry today. The approach people take 
to relieve the weight. Our government tries to relieve the weight of sin through legislation. Our community tries to relieve the weight of sin through medication. We try to relieve the weight of sin. It is a multi-billion dollar business today. But there's only one person that can really do it, and it doesn't cost you anything, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the one who relieves the weight of sin in our lives. Now, I want to go through these verses together with you. Chapter 2 is filled with action. The whole book of Mark is filled with action. You see the first word there? <clears throat> the first word in verse 1 is the word and. There's not many gospel writers or many writers for that matter that start the, the chapter or a paragraph with the word and. Mark does that. He does that on almost every paragraph, every chapter begins with one of three words. <clears throat> the word and, then, or immediately. Now, what you need to know is Mark is excited about telling you the story of Jesus. Mark is one of the youngest disciples, if not the youngest disciple, and so his youthful enthusiasm bubbles over. He's saying, I need to tell you this story. I want to tell you as quick as I can. He jams the life of Jesus into 16 chapters. Everyone else kind of moves along at an, maybe an adult pace. He's telling this at, a, at an action pace. I mean, this is an action movie to him. He's saying, this is great. I want to talk to you about it. I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to get as much in as I possibly can. Verse 1, and you heard it already, and again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. It's an interesting statement here. I want to tell you what this really means. Capernaum, again, is on the west side of the Galilee, a little hamlet. About 1,500 people made their living through agriculture and fishing. And it says here, and again, he entered into Capernaum. Jesus comes home. That's really what's happening here. So you can write that in. You can fill in the blanks if you'd like. But Jesus comes home. He comes home, the Bible says here, after some days. We're not sure how many days that included. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But we do know the reason that he left and where he went. Are you curious? Why did he go? Why did he leave Capernaum? Well, you find the answer in Mark chapter 1. And you can look at it and read Verse 45, and I'll back it up a little bit for you. You have to remember that he healed somebody here. He cleansed the leopard, and he said to the leopard, don't tell anybody, just go to the priest, get your certificate that you're cleansed, and everything's going to be fine. But please don't tell anybody. I don't want anyone to know. Well, guess what? He went out and he told a lot of people. And this is what it says in verse 45. However, he went out and he began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, the city of Capernaum, but was outside in the desert places, and they came to him for every, from every direction. See, they sought Jesus out. It's like Jesus was wearing a GPS of some sort, and they were going, we need to find him, we need to find him, let's go for him. Well, he had left because of someone else's disobedience. Right there, when I was reading that, I recognized there's a lesson for us to be learned. There's a lesson for all of us to learn here. We, we can see that here. How many know that the best made plans can be altered? That you have great plans and great intentions, whether they're business plans, whether they're family plans, whether they're community plans. Well, they can be altered in a moment's notice. That includes the plans of Jesus. The Lord's course, his mission took a bit of a detour because of someone else's disobedience. And as you read this, you just have to recognize that that is going to be part and parcel to life. And I know sometimes that's the place we get the most indignant. 
We think and we say to ourselves, listen, I didn't do anything wrong, but someone else's disobedience has brought wrath in my life or has detoured my plans. You know, those are the hardest things to deal with. Those are the most difficult things to deal with. But what you need to understand is that if the Lord's life is affected that way, we can expect the same thing as well. And if that's happening to you right now, just understand this. You're identifying with your Christ, with your Lord, because the same thing happened to him. When Jesus came back, it says that he was it was noised or heard. Depends on what version you read there, that he was in the house. You have to understand something. When you read this, the word the in the Greek here is an adjective. And it means a very specific house. That he's in his home base. We've talked about this before. And this leads us to believe that when these men started taking off the roof, they're taking the roof off Peter's house. Because this is where Jesus stayed. He stayed in Peter's house. Now, think with me just for a moment. It's hard for me to imagine that Peter thinks this is okay. (laughs) It really is hard for me to think that he's just standing by and letting them do this. Now, the account doesn't tell us where he was at and what he was doing, but I can imagine that he was up in arms. Maybe, Maybe Jesus had to calm him down as we see other accounts of Jesus calming him down. He's probably calming him down here. And it's hard to to see him just standing by. And when you read verses 2 through 4, and I want to read that again to you, it says, And when they could not come near the Lord Jesus because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven you. And I want to come to that. Two, verses 2 through 4 are wonderful because here's what I think sets the stage for a, a miracle. It's bringing the good news. Remember I said that earlier? It's bringing the good news. So what is Jesus doing just prior to this miracle taking place? He's bringing the good news. He's sharing the kingdom of God with all those that are there in and outside of this house. This is a prime environment for the miraculous. Jesus brings the good news. That's the next blank you can fill in there. You know, this was the mission of Jesus to preach the word of God. And I want to say this. I want to be bold about this. This should be our mission as well. Our mission is not only to speak the good news. Our mission is to live the good news. And so the people can see that light shining in you. They can see that light shining in me. I really see what the word of God has done in the hearts and lives of people today. I've seen the transformation. That the Word of God is not passive. The Bible says that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. The Bible says that it's alive, that it's active, and has the ability to tell us what is truth and tell us what is false. And so here, when the Word of God is being taught, we need to know that things are happening. Now, I have to admit, along with what I just said, sometimes I wonder whether there is an effect. Have you ever wondered that? I mean, you're preaching the good news or you're teaching it or you're living it. You're, you're going through a season that seems to be just dry. I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. And you're wondering, what is the word of God up to here? What's happening here? Those times can be discouraging. If you're in one of those periods, listen, take heart. I need to remember this. I need to remember that the word of God is alive. I need to remember what Isaiah 55:11 tells me. Isaiah, Isaiah 55:11 say, says to me that, It will be fruitful, that the word of God will be fruitful, that it will never return to me empty. And I need to believe that. I need to know. I need to trust. 
Now you see this, we read a story here, this little delegation of five. You have the sick man and you have his four great friends. They come to Jesus but can't get into the house because of the crowds. Well, it sounds to me like these four great friends did business some, some of the same ways we do business today. I think probably what they did to find out where the crowds were because carting this guy around was a lot of work. They probably enlisted some people's help. My guess is they had a few teams working for them, a few committees working for them. I think they probably had, and let your imagination go for a little bit, but they probably had a door team who ran to the door. They came back and said, nope, can't get in there. The window team ran to the windows, looked, couldn't get in there. They ran back and said, can't go there. And thank the Lord there's good news. They had a roof team. But because the roof team, they came back and they said, hey, it's a go. We can do it. Let's go up on the roof. Now, in the Middle East, and even today, the roofs are flat, and they're earthen. They're, they're made of uh, all kinds of things, dirt and flax and different things like that. So they're pulling through that. They're tearing through that. It's not like the roof that you have today. But still, it's, it's a spectacular thing going on. It's an unusual thing. Anytime anybody tears your roof off, it, it, it's different. I mean, this is really different. And so we see these guys doing this, and they're taking their business, they're taking the life of this man seriously. Now, I'm not sure if their joy of getting their friend to Jesus is quickly replaced with their embarrassment. Have you ever been that enthusiastic that you started through and, and followed through with something, got something done, and went, wow, what did I just do? Even though you know it's, it's probably a good thing, it's a right thing, I'm wondering what's going on with these guys. They had to realize that they just put the Son of God on hold. This, this, this does interrupt the meeting. I mean, when someone tears your roof off, the meeting stops. The, the meeting doesn't go any further. They had to realize that they just interrupted a meeting. Now, I'm going to say this. I want to go on record to say this. Some meetings, in fact, most meetings should be interrupted. And the ones that are run by Jesus, that's a different thing. But what's happening here? Think about it. You're sitting in somebody's living room, all crowded around a famous teacher, and then all of a sudden you hear a pounding on the roof. The teacher, with a strange look in his eyes, he looks up, he's dusting stuff out of his hair, debris that fell from the ceiling. And the next thing you know, there's a bunch of guys peering down from above, lowering a man through a hole in the roof. This was quite a scene. Don't underestimate it. It's quite a scene. The paralytic's arrival is a very dramatic intrusion into this scene. And the intruder who disrupts this lovely evening lecture, he isn't a popular celebrity. He isn't somebody that you would embrace. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees looked at this as more of an inconvenience. They, 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 they looked at this man and they didn't, they didn't pay a lot of attention to people like this. And I'm so glad for the heart of the Lord. Because what does the Lord do? He welcomes him. He brings him in. There's something that happens here. He doesn't see this as an inconvenience. Rather, he sees this as an opportunity. How many times in your life have you been inconvenienced and you missed the opportunity of God? I know I would have to sign up for that. I would have to say that would be me. I would have to say I've done that before. Here, Jesus does not miss the opportunity. I think this. I think with all the interruption, Jesus looked at them, not, not the whole in the ceiling, not, not all the mess that was made here, but he looked at them and he smiled. I'm pretty sure that he was pleased. Because the next thing that happens here is a big part of the miracle. In verse 5a, it says this. Listen, listen what the first part of it says. We read it already, but he says, when Jesus saw their faith, 
What was Jesus looking at? Again, he wasn't looking at the hole. He wasn't looking at the interruption. He was looking at their faith. How intent is that? I mean, how disciplined is that? How caring is that? He's looking at the intentions of these people and he's saying, man, I admire that. I like that. I want other people to live like this. These guys have a lot of faith. The Bible says that he saw their faith. Whose faith? The faith of the four men. Now, I want you to hear this because there are some teachings that will tell you that it was the faith of these men that saved their friend. That, that's not true here. Listen, it's great to have a godly mother. It's great to have a godly father. But their faith won't save you. It needs to be your faith. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. What is he saying here? Here's what Jesus was talking about. It was the faith of these men that brought him to a place where he could hear and be touched personally by Jesus. That's what Jesus admired. He was saying, I'm so glad that you brought your friend to me. So that I could touch him, that I could talk to him, that I can meet him. When Jesus saw their faith means their faith to bring the sick man to him. Now what a wonderful gift this is. Anyone should, should know themselves to be loved and cared for when they have friends like this. These, these, four, these four men are remarkable men. We don't know a lot about them. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about them. But, but it does tell us what they're doing. Sometimes it's hard. You know, it's hard to believe for yourself. If you're living with a circumstance or a condition for, for a period of time, it's hard to believe that God will intervene on your behalf. It, it is. I mean, you just get worn down, whether it's pain, physical or emotional pain. You're thinking, God, oh Lord, come quickly, come quickly. And, and you're wondering, where is God? Where is the Lord? You know where He shows up? He shows up with friends just like this. Friends who can believe things that you find hard to believe. Friends who can do things for you and want to do things for you that you couldn't do for yourself. I like friends like this. I'm glad I have friends like this in my life. Because they, they, they need to come along and they do and they come along encourage, and they encourage me. We need people to believe for us. You know what we need? We need stretcher bearers. That's what we need. We, we need men and women who will come alongside this kind of faith to go out and bring in the unsaved so that they can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Can I say this? The goal isn't necessarily to be best friends here. I don't know how closely associated these four guys were. I don't know. We don't know. But it's to hold each other up in our hurts, in our pain. To be able to tell truth so painful that tears flow. Within the community that we bring our brokenness as we realize that we're all broken in one way or another. And that healing can take place. To pick each other up and hold one another close. To dig through barriers. And even if necessary, carry one another all the way to the throne of grace. That's what we're called to do when we are stretcher bearers. We need more. We need people who will take responsibility. We need people who will say, I want to help, as opposed to run and say, well, I don't have the ability to do that. I don't have the talent to do that. You all do. You all have the ability to do that. I told you about spending time with my grandkids. My three-year-old granddaughter poured a whole mess of Legos and blocks right in front of the doorway. Great place. That's the place that hurts your feet. You've tripped and fall and all those kinds. And I said, honey, listen, we can play with these, but not right here. So I'm going to pick them up. And I want you to help me pick them up. And she looked at me and she goes, no, thanks, Grandpa. I'm not very good at that. <laughs> and I said, everybody can pick up blocks. 
come over here and help me. It's like, nah, this is not my gig. You know, this isn't my gig. Hey, listen, all of us can be stretcher bearers. It is your gig. It's my gig. We can do it. The Bible says that we can do it. This man was in obvious need of good news. You can tell. Do you know in another gospel, and the reason we know this is when we overlay the gospels and we look at Matthew and his account, you know what it says in the first thing Jesus says to this man? He says, son, be of good cheer. Wow. Jesus spots something deeper than his physical paralysis. He spots something deep in his spirit, in his heart. He knows that a word of encouragement is going to lift him up. What does he say to him? He says, son, be of good cheer. And listen, all of us can do that. To be able to say, to even look beyond what seems to be the obvious and to say, hey, be of good cheer. Jesus spots something that's weighing this man down. What's weighing him down is his sin. It's weighing him down even more than his physical condition. He needed his spiritual burden lifted, and that's why Jesus forgave us of our sins. That, that's the fourth thing you can write down about Jesus here in this story. Look at what verse 5b says. We've read a little bit of it. It says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. You see, the real burden was taken away because if the man had any chance of really functioning, if he had any chance of really contributing, it would be a result of his sins being forgiven. Jesus knows this about us. He knows this about you. You know, we can be fine on the outside. That doesn't mean that we're fine on the inside. The Bible says that Jesus took care of our sins. The thing that causes the most problem in our life. It isn't always our physical condition. It isn't always our financial condition. It's the sin condition we live in. And Jesus says, I want to deal with that. I want to take care of that. And he does. So what happens next here has caused a lot of discussion concerning Jesus' motivation. And that, that's the, the fifth thing here. Jesus responds to his critics. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what you pick up here when you read it, but I want you to read it again. Jesus does this in a wonderful way, but you can tell that, 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 that there's a righteous anger here of some sort. There, there's something going on here that Jesus steps into. And he does this on occasion. He does this when the scribes and Pharisees come and talk to the disciples. There's stories about Jesus interfering and running interference there and stepping up and say, hey, what are you guys talking about? There's times when healing is taking place and he turns to the scribes and says, hey, back off. Now, there are people that say, well, Jesus is very interested in, 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 in a religious process here. Well, he understood the Hebrew process. He understood what was going on here. But this isn't what, what motivates him. Can I tell you what motivates the Lord in this story and many others? His motivation was the well-being of one's soul. And it was the soul of this man. He saw something happening that could discourage him. And so what does he do? He says these kinds of things. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus' anger toward the Pharisees wasn't about theology. It wasn't about religion. It was about getting in the way, these men getting in the way of God's healing power and redemption in a person's life. And you know what? He's still jealous about that today. What he's about is healing us. What he's about is redeeming us. And anything that interferes with that, he wants to take care of it. He wants to deal with it. That's why he gets so pointed. That's why when he speaks to you about things like this, it's not always comfortable. 
is because he sees things in our lives that get in the way of his redemption and the healing power of Christ in us. So what does he do? He steps up and he's angry. He's angry here. Jesus fiercely defends the brokenhearted. Jesus fiercely defends the weak. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had little regard for people like this. The scribes and Pharisees were more concerned, and I said this earlier, about defending their social power. Now, these two guys, or these guys, asked two questions. The first question is, why does this man blaspheme? And the second was, only God can forgive sins. Now, they're wrong on the first question, they're right on the second. Jesus was not blaspheming, but it is true, only God can forgive sins. Now, here's something that we can never forget. Please hear this. Never forget this. God doesn't forgive because he's so big-hearted. That's almost the way we portray him. We know he is big-hearted, but he doesn't forgive just because he's big-hearted. He forgives us because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. That's why he forgives you. Don't make a mistake any other way. He forgives you because his son paid the price. Now, here's something that we can never forget, and that's it. He is taking care of our sins. Jesus was not speaking blasphemies because he's God. So he couldn't. And he could forgive sins because of the same reason. He's God. You see, it works. And so what happens? These critics didn't speak out, but they were thinking these things in their hearts. I want you to go to Matthew when you get a chance because Matthew draws a clearer picture of what he thought about these scribes and Pharisees. Mark and Luke are kind of nice here. They were thinking these things in their hearts or Jesus perceived these things in their hearts. You know what Matthew says? The scribes and Pharisees had evil thoughts. They're just bad guys. And that's the way he says it. He says they have evil thoughts. You see, they had good reason not to say anything And they were only doing this in their minds. They had run-ins with Jesus before. And every time they had a run-in with Jesus, they came away with a bloody nose. So you get hit enough in the nose, you're going to be quiet. And that's what's happening. They're saying, you know, last time we opened our mouth, it wasn't so good. Jesus messed us up. So they, they, they decide the best thing to do was to keep quiet. And they did. So Jesus brought their hearts to the surface. And by the way, these guys were not about to answer the question Jesus asked in verse 9, which is easier to do, to, to heal somebody or forgive them. Of sin. <laughs> they weren't going there. You notice they never answered that question. They didn't answer because to do either was impossible unless you're God. Jesus did both. He forgave sins and he healed. I want you to look at what verses 10 through 12 say, and I love this. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And then the last verse, immediately he arose, took the bed. He went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And I want to finish with this. You know, I think the reason Jesus told the man to pick up his bed, have you ever thought about that? He told this is a this is an exclamation mark on the end of this healing. He's saying, I want you to take up your bed. Because I want you to be sure of something. I want you to be sure that you'll never go back to that bed. See, this is just as much symbolic as it is real and physical. That this man picking up his bed, Jesus is saying to the man and he's saying to everyone watching. 
My healing is complete and thorough. There will be no relapse here. This man is going home walking and he will never, ever, ever come back to this bed again. He was separated from something that identified him, separated from something that he was so enmeshed with. This was his life. And Jesus took it out. And he said, you aren't going to live this way again. Jesus was telling everybody, listen, you need to know what's happening here. There is something thorough taking place. There's some evidence here, and I'm going to finish with it. There's evidence here that, that to be a full member of Jewish community and society back then, one had to be physically whole. That if you're going to be in full standing, complete standing in, in Jewish community, Jewish society, you couldn't be blind, you couldn't be lame, and we know this, you certainly couldn't be a leper. We know that. This is because whether through sickness or sin or something else, he would have been thought to be ritually unclean. When it comes to Jesus' healing the paralytic, he offers them, listen, he offers them what is called back in the Old Testament and even to this time, he offers them and this man the gift of shalom. You know what he's saying here? Be healed and be at peace, body, soul, and spirit. I've taken care of your sin. I've taken care of your body. You are complete. What Jesus is telling all of us today, that there is no recess in your life, no facet or dimension of who you are, that he will not get to and bring healing to your life if you invite him in. He's saying, let me give to you the gift of shalom. Be healed, body, soul, and spirit. Be complete as a child of God. Be complete. So what does Jesus do? He not only restores him, but he restores him back into his community. Something that he probably never experienced before. He said, now go back. And be part of the house that you belong to. Be part of the community you belong to. And I want to tell you what, healing flows from that, doesn't it? That when we're part of the community, we can understand it. We can know that. He does that here. And I'm going to ask this in closing, that what you do is that you call on the Lord and ask Him to do the same thing for you. You know what what the Old Testament would say? It was not only the gift of shalom, but you're now in full and complete standing in the community of Yahweh. That's what they would say. That you have been fully embraced. And today you need to know as men and women, as boys and girls, as children, as daughters, as sons, as the king, that you're in full standing with him. Because he's given you the gift of shalom. Receive it today. And as we go into this Easter season, I'm going to ask that you prepare yourself. Because that's what this message is really all about. It's about preparing for something. There's a threshold we're crossing over and we're saying we're entering into a a season that leads us to the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we would be mindful of this. And isn't this a wonderful story that communicates that to us? There's only one other story I think of other than the resurrection itself that brings us this close to preparing ourselves to understanding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the story of Lazarus. This This is the second one I would put in that category. Because you can learn so many things. Take this and learn what you need to learn. A few weeks, we're going to have a guest speaker. He's a good friend. He's spoken here before. His name's Sam Rockwell. He called me the other day and he says, Hey, Ron, uh, get a hold of me. I want to talk to you. I I have something in mind that I want to bring to your congregation for Touchable Jesus. I said, Great. Called him up. He says, What are you doing? I said, I'm just studying. He goes, Great. What I want to do 
is I want to preach out of Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, about the four who brings the paralytic to Jesus. And I said, that is a great story. He says, what are you doing right now? I said, I'm studying Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's the story. About and he goes, whoa. He goes, should I talk about that? And I said, absolutely. That story can be told in so many different ways. Come and tell us that, that story again. We need to hear the story. Because it's a story of wholeness, of being complete in Jesus Christ. Friends, be complete in Jesus' name. Would you bow your head?